So we are continuing uh, today to learn about some of the profound ways that Jesus spoke about himself. We have called this series, Jesus in His Own Words, and how he taught about himself. And Jesus' disciple John, who was one of his closest disciples, he wrote uh, one of the stories about Jesus that we have in the Bible. And, uh, and in that, he records a lot about what Jesus had to say about himself. In fact, in the Gospel of John, uh, most of the teaching that Jesus does is about himself. Um, and, uh, and Mike and I have chosen in this series to teach uh, about some of the key times where Jesus used metaphors to tell us important things about himself. And in each of these, he uses this phrase, I am the, and then he fills it in with a different metaphor. Um, and so we started with, I am the bread of life. And we talked to that week about uh, Jesus telling us that we need to feed our souls on him as our spiritual food in order to have a healthy spiritual life. And then we saw, I am the light of the world, where Jesus tells us that he is the one who reveals and teaches the truth about the world and about God and about ourselves. And the next one was, I am the door. And you remember we had a big door here and... Uh, and we talked about uh, Jesus saying that uh, that means that he is the means to God and the means to salvation from sins and the means to the abundant life. And then last week, we looked at the time when Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And there we saw that Jesus was telling us that he cares for us, that he knows us, and that he lays down his life for us. And next week on Easter, where Pastor Mike is going to be talking about the one where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And today's section from John is the, the first section of chapter 15, so you can flip there if you want to in your Bible, um, where Jesus says, I am the vine. Um, not I am divine, that's something slightly different. He's also divine, but this one he says, I'm the vine. So... Um, Anyway, uh, before we get to the specific meaning of Jesus calling himself a plant, um, I want to talk for a few minutes about one of the key features of all of these sayings. Um, when I was a missionary in South Africa, my primary uh, ministry there was teaching Bible college, and one of the subjects that I taught was biblical Greek. See, the New Testament portion of the Bible was written in Greek, which was the common language of the Roman Empire at that time. And for serious Bible scholarship, when we really want to dissect the precise meaning of the words of Scripture, it is uh, better to work with the original languages than to work with a translation. See, sometimes the original language is more precise in its meaning than is possible for us to get across in a translation. Or sometimes the original language is a little more broad in its meaning than we can really get across very well in translation. And, and sometimes you can see subtle emphases in the original language that's just not there in the translation. And so, so we, we learn to, uh, to read the original language. And when I was teaching Greek, I used to tell my students, don't mention Greek in your sermon. Greek is for sermon preparation, not for sermon delivery. It's something you use to, to, to understand the word, not to... Uh, to preach it. But of course, every now and then, it's good to make exceptions to that. And here we have one of those times when, uh, when we can make an exception and talk about uh, the Greek here. So this uh, that you're seeing on the screen here is two Greek words, uh, ego, me, and it means I am. So the first word there, ego, 
uh, is the first person singular pronoun, I. And, uh, and we brought that word into English as ego, right? Which is kind of has a, uh, an overlapping meaning with the Greek. But in the Greek, it's a little more broad. It's just, uh, it's the first person pronoun. It just means I. Um, so the second word there is a me, which is a form of the verb to be. And just like in English, you know how we have different forms of that word. We say, I am, he is, uh, and you are. But am, is, and are are really all forms of the same word. They all mean to be. They mean is. Um, And in Greek, it's the same thing. There's different forms of the word depending on the subject of the verb. But one of the differences between Greek and English is that with Greek, all verbs have the subject of the verb contained in the form, in the spelling of the word. So depending on what the subject is, they they, uh, add a different ending or things to it. So so in English, we always use two words. We say, he is, you are, I am. But in Greek, the pronouns are unnecessary because the the subject is there in the the word itself. And so they usually just leave the, the pronouns off. So a me... That word, it um, means I am. You don't need a go at the beginning of it. And normally, you would, you would leave that off. So uh, when they do um, include this, it's sort of like they're saying, I, I am. And, and when you speak that way or you talk that way, it is for the purpose of emphasizing the subject of the verb. So in all of these sayings where Jesus says, I am the bread of life, and I am the door, and I am the light of the world, and I am the vine, he's using this form, and he's deliberately emphasizing that he is these things. And that's important because um, for most of these things, there's a certain sense that they're true of other people as well, right? I mean, we saw that when we looked at uh, the light of the world. Jesus said, I am the light of the world, but he also said, you are the light of the world. Um, And, you know, he said, I am the good shepherd, but um, he also, the Bible uses the word shepherd to describe all the pastors and leaders of God's people. But when Jesus declared these things about himself, he uses this particular form of grammar with this almost repetitive structure to say, I... I am the light of the world, or I, I am the good shepherd. So in all of these instances, Jesus is making a big claim. He is making claims about himself that are forcing us to make a decision. And he does this because Jesus does not want us to say what so many people seem to want to say about him. And that is that he's a good religious leader who taught us some really good ethical principles. You know, turn the other cheek and and all these kinds of things. Really, really good. He's a good religious leader. Um, He taught us how to pray. He taught against uh, religious legalism. But a lot of people want to say, but he was really not that different from other good religious leaders like Moses or Isaiah or even like Martin Luther or John Calvin. Um, Jesus was just a good religious teacher who taught us a lot of great stuff about God. 
But by making these bold claims that Jesus is doing here, he's saying things about himself that are really just too extreme for that. Right? He's even framing it with this kind of grammatical emphasis where he says, I, I am the light of the world. I am the door. He's not just showing us the way to God. He is the way to God. He is the door. He is the shepherd and the light and the way. And in a way that is different from how anybody else might be described in those ways. And so in all of these sayings, and especially in their cumulative impact... Um, Jesus is making claims that force us to decide either he really is the Son of God and all these things that he's claiming to be, or he's not really a good teacher at all. So C.S. Lewis described it like this. He, he, He made this argument with three L's. Lewis says, Jesus made such bold claims that he is either a liar or he's a lunatic or he's the Lord. So it could be that Jesus was a liar, right? It could be that Jesus knew that these things were not true about himself, but he said them anyway, right? He knew that he wasn't the light of the world in some special sense. He knew that he wasn't really the bread that came down from heaven, but he wanted to trick people, or he wanted to, you know, for whatever reason, he wanted people to believe these things, and so he said them. But if that was the case, we certainly should not follow him, because he is not a good teacher, he is a liar. Or another possibility is that Jesus actually believed these things about himself, but he was mistaken. Right? He, he thought that he was the bread of life that had come down from heaven and all the rest of these things, but he uh, was, in fact, just an ordinary guy. And in that case, also we should not follow him because he was crazy. <laughs> he was a lunatic. Or the only other real possibility that Jesus leaves open to us is that he really is all these things that he claimed to be. That he is actually the light of the world and the bread of life and the resurrection and the life. And in that case, we would be foolish not to follow him. His claims are too big to leave open the option of just considering him to be a good guy. So, where are you? What do you think about Jesus? Where, where, do you, where do you decide to put him? Because really, if he said these things, he cannot be somewhere in the middle. He either has to be everything or nothing. So now let's take a closer look at the specific things that he has to say in our, in our main section for today in John 15, where he says, I am the vine. So let's look at that in John chapter 15, verse 1. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Now Jesus doesn't just say in this verse, I am the vine, right? He says, I am the true vine. Why the true vine? Well, for people who know the imagery of the Old Testament Scriptures really well, like his disciples that he was talking to here, they would have recognized that as a reference to something from the Old Testament. Because in several places in the Psalms and in the Prophets, the people of God are described as a vine. 
And so uh, a good example of that is in Psalm 80. Here's a couple of verses from Psalm 80 where he says, uh, You transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. So in that metaphor, um, the vine is the people of God who were brought up out of Egypt uh, in the Exodus story and, uh, and conquered the promised land and settled there and, and spread out and filled the land. And this psalm then goes on to talk about how while the vine initially flourished in the land, uh, it has now become unproductive and is under God's judgment. And in fact, um, that's actually the theme of all the passages that talk about the people of God as a vine is how they have failed to produce the fruit that they were intended to produce and that they have, uh, have not fulfilled their, their purposes. And so now Jesus says to his disciples, I, I am the true vine. That is, he's saying that he himself is the true vine that will produce the good fruit for God. Man, that's one of those things. If Jesus is wrong about this, that's an incredibly arrogant and inappropriate thing to claim. He's essentially saying that where other people over all the centuries, the people of God have failed to be the vine and to produce the fruit that God wanted from them, he himself will do what everyone else has failed to do. And we're going to get to how he does that in just a moment. But first, he introduces this idea also in this verse that God the Father is the vine dresser or the gardener. He is the farmer who takes care of the vine. And in the next verse, he tells us uh, what it is that God does in his care for the vine. So uh, 15.2 says, He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Now we see a couple of verses down, he explains what, what he's talking about here with the branches are people. The branches are, uh, are, are us. And as the vine dresser, God inspects the branches, and He does one of two things. He either, uh, if the branch bears no fruit, He cuts it off and throws it away. And if it does bear fruit, He prunes it so that it will bear more fruit. So let's, let's look at each one of those. Uh, first, what does it mean that he cuts off fruitless branches? Well, if the branches are people, Jesus is saying that God will cut off every person in him who bears no fruit. And to be cut off is to come under the judgment of God. This is not uh, correction or discipline. That's what he's talking about in the next section where he talks about pruning. This cutting off is... Judgment. This is people who are not saved from their sins and who will, at the final judgment, be sent into eternal punishment. This is a warning from Jesus. God is the vine dresser, and He will cut off every branch that bears no fruit. So who are we talking about here? Who is in danger of, of, of being cut off? Well, I think a, a good illustration of this principle is from a story that Jesus told uh, about the sower and the soils. Remember that story? 
In that parable, Jesus uses a farming metaphor uh, in which he's talking about a sower who's throwing out seeds in his field, and the seeds land on four different types of soil. And as he explained the parable, Jesus says the seed is the good news, the gospel message that's being uh, proclaimed. And the four different kinds of soil are different groups of people who respond to the message in different ways. So one group rejects the message right away, not interested. The next two groups both initially respond well and they accept the message with joy, he says. But their acceptance is only on the surface. And when hard times comes or when uh, the, the pleasures of the life uh, tempt them away, they abandon their belief in the message. Only the fourth group of people, the, represented by the, the good soil, have the seed take root deep and produce fruit. Now, the metaphor is a little bit different here in John 15, but the branches that produce no fruit and are cut off by the vine dresser are the same as the two middle groups of people. They are those who hear the message about Jesus, think it sounds pretty good, but they fail to commit to it in a way that produces fruit. And so when times of testing come, either through hard times or through good times, they fail the test and they're cut off. These people will not be saved from their sins. They are judged by God to be lacking fruit and are therefore sent to judgment. The Bible tells us a story of a man who is a a powerful illustration of this principle. It was one of Jesus' 12 closest disciples. His name was Judas. And Judas, at one point, heard Jesus' teaching and said, wow, this sounds great. I want to follow this guy. And, uh, and he had even been included into the inner group of Jesus' followers. And one of the big indicators of how much Judas seemed to be a true believer comes uh, at the very last day, during the Last Supper. Um, Jesus uh, is eating with his 12 disciples, and during the dinner, he predicts that one of the 12 is going to betray him. And now what's interesting is what did not happen at that point. The disciples didn't look at each other and be like, yeah, I bet it's going to be Judas because that guy's a fake. No, no one said that. In fact, they all were so astonished that one of them could possibly betray Jesus that uh, they all start thinking, man, it can't be me, is it, Jesus? But Judas had been with them for three years, and he had convinced them all that he was a true disciple. I'm sure that at the beginning it even convinced himself. But he showed the truth in that he betrayed Jesus to the authorities for money. And he serves as a kind of an extreme example of just the kind of warning that Jesus is giving here in this parable. Those branches that are in him but are not true believers, not bearing fruit for him, will be judged by God. The other thing that uh, God does as the vine dresser is that he prunes the branches that are bearing fruit so that they will produce even more fruit. 
See, God wants us to be fruitful Christians, and He is at work in our lives to keep us moving and growing toward greater levels of fruitfulness. But He does this through a process of pruning. And pruning uh, in, in vine dressing, in agriculture, is when some parts of the plant are cut off in order to promote more growth in other parts, right? So with a vine like this, you need to prevent the plant from spreading all its energy, growing more leaves and growing more stalk and branches and things. You want it to be putting its energy into the fruit. And so they cut off uh, some of the, the branches and things so that the, the plant will um, put its energy into growing grapes. And that concept is, is described, the, the metaphor here is described in a bit less of a metaphorical way in the biblical book of Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to turn over there and read this section of Hebrews chapter 12 that talks about the same idea of of, uh, God's work in our lives. He says, starting in verse 4 of Hebrews chapter 12, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. One, One thing there, you know, God is expecting us to be struggling against sin, right? Not just to be kind of casually floating along in life, but to be actively working and struggling in our uh, to, uh, to reduce the sin in our lives. It says, you have, and, and you have completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son. It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in His holiness. So God brings things into our lives in order to help us to grow in holiness. Or in the, uh, you know, some of these things are unpleasant. They are pruning the branch, right? They're hardships. But we should accept God's discipline in our lives as His means of making us more holy. Or in in terms of the John 15 metaphor, uh, to make us more fruitful. In verse 3, Jesus goes on to talk about the vine. He says, You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. So because these disciples that he's talking to here have, have already heard and accepted the things that Jesus has been teaching them, they are clean, which means they are on the right track to bear fruit. Right? They're, 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 they're doing well. They're off to a good start. Verse 4, um, he says, Remain in me as I also remain in you. Here's what you want to do. You're off to a good start. You're already clean, but here's how to continue. Remain in me. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. So, 
in this section, Jesus is introducing the other main theme of this, uh, this vine metaphor, which is um, the dependence of the branches on the main vine in order to produce fruit. We, as branches, are completely dependent for our spiritual lives on the main vine, which is Jesus. A branch by itself has no root, no connection to the ground, no source for water or nourishment. A branch by itself cannot bear fruit. And Jesus expands on this idea in the next uh, verses here. Verse 5, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So this dependence on Jesus has two sides to it. First, it means that we can't bear fruit without Jesus. Right? It's only through our dependence on Him that we can do it. But it also means that it's not up to us to bear fruit on our own. Right? We have Jesus, who is our vine, who is providing us with everything we need to be fruitful. We can do nothing without Him, but He isn't asking us to do anything without Him. He's offering Himself to help us. Now, there's two, two big questions that we need to answer about this passage in order to really understand what we're talking about here. First, we need to talk about what it means to bear fruit. We've been saying that a lot already, but uh, I haven't really defined what we're talking about here, and we're going to define that in just a second. And then the second thing um, we need to really understand here is what does it mean for us to remain in Jesus, or in some of your Bibles it says to abide in Jesus, and for Him to remain in us. So in this passage, in John 15 here, Jesus does not explain what he means by fruit. Uh, he, he just uses that phrase and assumes that people know what he's talking about. Um, but it's a common enough metaphor in the Bible. And of course, there's, there's a classic passage that explains it fairly uh, fully, uh, is the fruit of the Spirit passage from John chapter 15. Oh, sorry, we're in John chapter 15. It's Ephesians chapter 5, where he explains it more fully. Um, And here's what it says there in Ephesians chapter 5. It says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against such things there is no law. So what is it that God wants from us? What kind of fruit does He want us to be producing? This stuff right here. He wants us to live lives that are characterized more and more by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. God wants really good things for us, right? He wants you to have a great life. And in the metaphor from a couple weeks ago, uh, He wants us to find pasture Remember talking about that? He wants us to have the abundant life. Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. That's the fruit that God wants from us, right? All really good things, things that will actually make us happy, things that will make the people around us happy. We're sometimes tempted to think that what will actually make us happy is sin. But it's not true. 
God knows what is best for us. And God wants what is best for us. He wants to give us life to the full. And here in the vine metaphor, he's telling us that without him, we will not have life to the full. We will not produce fruit unless we are connected to the vine. I mean, yes, it's true that people do experience moments when we have love and joy and peace and the rest without being followers of Jesus. Um, But in order to have life to the full, in order to have the abundant life to produce real fruit in our lives, we need Jesus. And when we remain in Him, He gives us what we need to live fruitful lives. Now, that's not something that a normal religious teacher would say, right? Jesus is saying that He Himself is the source of, of all spiritual life. He is the vine without which a branch will shrivel and die and will in fact be cut off and judged by God. But along with that warning is a promise. If we do remain in Him, then He will help us to produce the fruit that will give us a good life and will please God. As it says in the Ephesians passage, this is... uh, The fruit of the Spirit. As Christians, we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and as we keep in step with Him, He produces this fruit in our lives. So, what does it mean to remain in Him? Well, this is another way of saying the same thing that Jesus has said in several of these other metaphors that we've looked at already in this series, right? Uh, In the metaphor of the bread of life, He said we must eat His flesh and drink His blood. And in the metaphor of the door, he said, you must go in and out and find pasture. And here he says, you must remain connected to the vine. And in all of these are just ways of picturing this intimate, close relationship that we have between ourselves and Jesus. So how do we go about nurturing that relationship? Well, one of the big ways is through prayer through talking to Him about what is happening in our lives, the struggles we're going through, the good things that are happening, the desires we have for the future. All of that should be part of our regular practice of prayer. To stay connected to the vine, we need to be talking to Him about our lives. Any aspect of your life that you want to be fruitful in, that's one that you need to be connecting with Jesus about. Another aspect of this is to keep His teachings in your mind. To do that, you need to be reading the Bible regularly. You need to be in church. You need to be worshiping Him through song. You need to be uh, hearing good Christian teaching. Have spiritual conversations with your friends. Join a journey group where you can have those kinds of conversations and get more of Jesus' teaching into your mind. So keep Jesus in your thoughts. If you only think about Jesus when you're doing church things, uh, you're not fully remaining in Him. Jesus wants to be in your mind all the time when you're at work, when you're at play, throughout your life. If you want to experience life to the full, the life full of fruit 
of love, joy, peace, and all the rest, then you need to keep connected to Jesus in all the areas of your life in which you want to experience that. Jesus is the necessary source of a fruitful life. So we need to remain in the vine in order to grow more and more into life in the full. So, what's one thing that you need to to do to increase your connection to the vine? Do you need to spend a little more time in prayer? Do you need to be in regular Bible reading? Do you need to join a journey group? What is it you need to do? Um, I won't tell you that you need to do everything all at once, but what's one step that you can take to, uh, to take the next step toward connecting yourself to the vine so that he can help you to produce more fruit in your life? Let's pray.